Hello there, and welcome to A Sobering Thought, a podcast about addiction focusing on alcoholism, sobriety, and related mental health issues. I'm Stuart, the host and producer, slash the idiot with the microphone. Before we get going, I just need to warn you, we talk about some serious things around alcoholism addiction and our own experiences, so it can be pretty heavy at times, and there is the occasional mild swear, so you have been warned. So in this episode, we've got Paul, who impressed me at a 12 Steps meeting, and I figured he'd be a top guy for this podcast. We sat down at the kitchen table to talk about the big book, 12 Step Programme, and specifically Step 1. Paul is a handsome, strapping American with a hint of the Ben Afflecks about him, who looks like he could cut down a tree with his bare hands, and me, who looks, well, not so strapping and handsome. But anyway, with a quick press of record and play on the old tape recorder, away we went. I brought one of my older big books that's good and marked up. You see the pages. <laughs> it always looks impressive when there. someone turns up with an old book that's uh, someone's gone to town on. Yeah, I've got. This is my third one that I've totally destroyed. Really? I've just started a new one. I, I use them till they fall apart, and then I start a new one. Um, so I've just started on a new one. Going back through it, I'm up to page 135. But you can see, like this one. That means I've stopped there one, two, three, four times. So that means I've gone through this book at least four times. Uh, and I think it's been longer. I think if you look, I think there's, I think I've probably been through this one at least six times cover to cover, but then I'm always turning to it to look for something or whatever, you know? So for me, it's, it's like, I've got to confess, I'm only like 19 months into my journey. Mm-hmm. I've only read the beginning of the big book and started to get in, you know, get into it. I'm on light step. It's going to start step four with my sponsor. Well, well, time makes no difference. Somebody with 20 years sobriety who hasn't done the work is not qualified to sponsor anybody. Yeah. Somebody with two months sober who's been through the 12 steps thoroughly and honestly, it's time for them to sponsor somebody. Quantity of sobriety is irrelevant. The quantity of your sobriety is based on your spiritual condition, which is based on you going through the work, which is, and I'll get into this, it is absolutely insane when you walk into a meeting and say, don't worry about the steps right now. You just keep coming back. Are you freaking crazy? I've been drinking myself to death and, and I should just ease into the solution. Are you out of your mind? Look at how the old timers work the steps. Number three's on his hospital bed doing a third step. Fair enough. Time they didn't call it a third step. It was too new. They hadn't codified the work. You know, Dr. Bob's going around town making his amends and he's still shaking. You know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. It was done historically quick, thorough, and honest, and it's become very polluted and very watered down. There's a number of reasons for that, but um, it's, it's not about how long you've been sober. It's about getting into the work quick, thorough, and honest, and anybody who tells you that's incorrect doesn't know the book, hasn't read the book, and doesn't know the history of the program. My experience of... Oh, are we recording? <laughs> yeah, we're recording, so I thought I might as well get this. So, like... My experience so far has been to be as brutally honest with myself as possible in all aspects of my recovery. So it's not just been 12-step program, more of a holistic approach. Been doing Steps to Wellbeing, which is a local counselling, sponsor, 12-steps program, you know, friends and family counselling me and helping me. That That's what I've I've been doing. But the cornerstone, like you say, is just to be brutally honest with yourself because otherwise it's... It's pointless. It seems pointless. Yeah, and, and to recognize that, by definition, if I'm an alcoholic, and, 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 and again, differentiate between the alcoholic and hard drinker. I mean, if, if I'm an alcoholic, if, if I am totally without control over the first drink, if I'm totally 
powerless over whether I drink and when I start drinking, how much I drink. If I'm a real alcoholic, then everything else I learn uh, is just icing on the cake. Yeah. No matter how much I learn intellectually, it will never keep me sober. Yeah. That's that's what it means to be an alcoholic. So you want to learn about neurotransmitters. You want to learn about cognitive distortions. You want to learn about whatever. Great. Knowledge is power. But understand that for us, uh, it, it if, if you are a true alcoholic, it takes a vital spiritual experience. And, and we get that in 12-step fellowships by working the 12 steps. And I think you're right. I mean, holistic's a good word for it because what... What goes on outside of the rooms is much more important than what goes on inside of the rooms. There's a bizarre focus on people's sobriety being contingent upon how many meetings they go to. Um, yeah, you hear a lot of people talking about 90 and 90 days. Yeah, what do you do on 91? Yeah, you know I, what I, mean? I, I, didn't, I never quite understood that. Well, in the States, you hear them say, they say, meeting makers make it. And that's, that's bizarre because a meeting will never give you a vital spiritual experience. Uh, meetings are not the program, right? There's a. It seems to me it's been more about the connections that you can make within meetings, and the and the the conversations you can have, and the and like we're doing right now, and you can share the knowledge, and you can understand the the what other people are going through, and that was like a major part for me. Yeah, but that's 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 not a program. That's yeah. not a program. The meetings are the fellowship. The meetings are where you go to talk about the program. If you look at what the book says, it says we meet frequently so that newcomers can find the fellowship. Meaning, we work the steps, we recover. We talk about the solution. So the newcomer who brings his problem to the meeting, as the book would say, he shows up with his alcoholic problem, can find a bunch of people who have recovered from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and can show him the solution as outlined in the 12 steps in the first 164 pages of what we'll call the big book. Um, 12 step meetings, the only authority in those is, is our group conscience, uh, as he may express himself, you know, or no, what, what does the wording say? A loving God as he may express himself through our group conscience. And, and if you look at what this book is, this book is the culmination of the trials, tribulations, and successes and failures of the first 100 people in this program, right? This was their collective consciousness. This was their collective knowledge. They say the flying blind period ended with the publication of this volume, right? And so uh, alcoholics, addicts died in the writing of this book, and they based this fellowship around it. So the program is the 12 steps as outlined in the first 164 pages of this book. 164 the, pages yeah, of the big book. Yeah. Right. If you look at the personal stories in the back, what those were meant for is when this was published in 39, there was not 12-step meetings all over the country. So you would get an addict alcoholic who could get this book. He couldn't hear a share. He couldn't understand uh, whether or not he had alcoholism or, or... So what you're saying is the experiences in the back of the book are more like the meetings that we go to where people share Correct. what they've the, gone and, through. And the book will tell you that's what they're there for. And it says maybe you'll read those and go, oh, I drank like that or oh, I think I could recover too. That, I mean, the book tells you plainly what they're there. But the work, the program, the 12 steps, they're not in the back of the book. They're in the first 164 yeah. pages. The way that my great-grand sponsor put it to my grand sponsor, he said, you can read the stories in the back of the book when you've memorized the first 164 pages. Now, he's not being literal, but what I mean is if you're a newcomer, read the first 164 pages, I you know, the instruction manual, yeah. before you're reading the stories in the back. If you already have an adequate idea of what an alcoholic is, 
the, the stories, great, read them recreationally, uh, especially the first two. Uh, they're good for history of our program. You know, great. But that's not where the work is. If you haven't written a four-step, you got no business reading page 417. Right. You know what I mean? Um, which, by the way, is one of the most uh, misquoted, mischaracterized So what's on page 417? And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. And if you look at it in context, it's fantastic. It's accepting that I have this disease and that I have to do something about it. Right. That I have to work this program. If you look at it in context, it's fantastic. But how it gets shared in meeting is... Just that little soundbite. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. So it's taken out of context. Yeah, because you know what? A lot of times action's the answer to all my problems today. Somebody breaks into my house. I'm not going to sit there and accept it. You, you know what I mean? I'm going right. to handle business. In, the, in, that, in, that same, uh, in that same vein, if I'm dying of alcoholism, I'm going to accept that I'm dying of alcoholism, that I need a vital spiritual experience to recover, and it's going to get my butt into action. But we, we don't get that. People right. don't read the whole story. They just say acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. And uh, Well, that's, that's, that's the problem with nearly any text, if you know what I mean, when someone is just going to take little yeah. bites yeah. and then extrapolate from there. You've got to take the whole context. You know, you hear people give advice to newcomers. I've even heard this thing called, will somebody read the tips for newcomers? And it's just a useless document. Uh, it's, just, <laughs> it's just a useless document. The only thing the newcomer needs to hear is, get a sponsor, read the book, work the steps. Uh, you say that, you say that, but um, uh, the halt, don't get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that was a step for advice for newcomers. And I tell you what, I live by that, and that's helped me a thousand times. But that's not what it says. It says, watch out for hungry, angry, lonely, tired, because these feelings can lead to a drink. And that's a lie. Untreated alcoholism leads to a drink. I, I just finished a doctorate last year. I moved far away from my sweet home. I was broke. I lived in a little apartment. I didn't have no friends outside of the room of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was in grad school. I was hungry, angry, lonely, and tired every day. So if my sobriety was contingent upon not being hungry, angry, lonely, tired, I'd have been drunk. But it's not. It's contingent upon the maintenance and growth of my spiritual condition. I think what they're saying is that those are key triggers for people to no, no, have no. a drink. Yeah, yeah, but there are, there are no triggers. I'm an alcoholic. I have the disease of addiction. If I have the urge to drink, I will take a drink every time. I'm without defense against the first drink. If you look, I'm going to quote a few pages out of the big book. If you, okay. look, if you look at what page 24, and this passage on page 24 will pretty much shoot through the foot everything in that tips for newcomers. This is in the chapter of, of uh, There is a Solution. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we, will sh we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a, c a complete failure of this kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on the hot stove. So when you tell an alcoholic, now just remember, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. Don't take the first drink. If I could make the choice to not take the first drink, I would not be an alcoholic. Okay? So it's, it's, it comes from... 
a total misunderstanding of our disease and a total misunderstanding of, of how we solve our problem. If you tell a newcomer, get a sponsor, work the steps, you will have the drink obsession removed, and then you'll never have to worry about triggers again, I would argue that's a lot more helpful than saying, watch out for these situations. Because what this book tells me is that any scheme combating alcoholism that involves shielding the newcomer from temptation is doomed to failure. Okay. I would say when you first go in the rooms, it's a good starting point. Because you just want to stop drinking. What, what, yeah, I know. And you don't have the ability to do it. Lack of power. That was so, our dilemma. That was our dilemma. And we gain power by connection with our higher power as we do this work. Anything short of telling a newcomer to get a sponsor and work the steps is watered down. Is watered down. It says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. We must have a message that has depth and weight. So if you give me a hug and a cup of tea, great. But if I'm dying of alcoholism, that's never going to stop me from drinking. That's true. That's very true. Right. So uh, I think we covered quite a lot <laughs> straight away. But we're here to do uh, step one. So do you want to do your share as you would do it in the in the uh, in the rooms well i mean i'll just tell you what i know about step 1 and 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 let me pause for a second because i don't mean to be harsh they told me hungry angry lonely tired yeah and we don't know how to take care of ourselves when we first come in. And it's good advice to tell me to drink water and eat chocolate. I'm not trying to crap on that. I'm trying to say when we read that, but don't tell the newcomer to get a sponsor, we've failed the newcomer. I'd agree with you. So forgive me for saying that. I, I just I want to emphasize the importance of the one, not crap on, on, on the other one. Yeah. Um, and then just one quick word about meetings. It's not that there's anything wrong with meetings. Meetings are great. And in the beginning, a bunch of meetings are great. I went to a bunch of meetings. And it's great because you need people who don't want something from you. A lot of us, all our friends were losers and they used us in any way that we could. We need people who don't have screwed up motivations. We need to meet people and get phone numbers. We need to find a sponsor. So I don't mean to crap on meetings either. But going to meetings and watching for triggers will never relieve me of my alcoholic no, obsession. No, you've got to dig out the root issue. That's all I wanted to, yeah. to, to get at. So I apologize if, if I came off too harsh. Um, it's, You're just passionate. <laughs> no, I am. I, I, I am. And, you know, when um, number three, his wife, asked Bill Wilson, you know, why are you doing this? Why would you come up into the hospital to save my husband? He said, you know, God was so good to me and saving me from my alcoholism that I just can't keep it to myself. And if we're not at that point, then we've done something wrong in, these, in the first 11 steps. If we're not fired up to do a 12th step, if we're not fired up to sponsor these newcomers. I must admit, I do look around and I see some other people uh, suffering or have what I would describe as very unhealthy relationships with alcohol, bordering on alcoholics that I know. Um, but it seems to be almost socially acceptable for them to sort of bumble along and not do well and struggle and... And you do, you find yourself thinking, God, I'd really love to help that person. I'd really love to talk to them about it. But then there's the whole flip side where, I can't remember, I think it's in the 12 traditions about the uh, attraction, not, I can't think of the correct word. You, you don't need to think of it. It's on page 562 of the book. The short form of it's on page 562 of the book. So but, but again, look at it in context. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. Yeah. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Look at how they went and helped people back in the day. They'd roll up in a hospital looking for people to help. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. Not the suffering alcoholic in meetings. When the suffering alcoholic says, I'm new, you go straight for him. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. I just mean... Uh 
when you realise you're an alcoholic, you start to see it a lot more in other people. That's true. That's true. Although I would argue that the line between a true alcoholic and a hard drinker can sometimes be very blurry because there were people that I came up with getting high with, getting drunk with. We did the exact same things. We stole to support our habit. You know what I mean? We, uh, but when the time came to grow up, they grew up. I didn't. I had to have a vital spiritual experience. So what I mean is you can't just look at the symptoms. And we'll get into the symptoms of, of alcoholism and, and we can touch when on When you say them. you didn't grow up, do you mean like you didn't develop? You just stayed the same? You were... Yes, whereas they stopped doing dope and drinking and went off to college and, and, and then began to drink socially. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't. I went into oblivion and had to have a vital spiritual experience. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the invisible line between the hard drinker and the alcoholic. So I think a really good, uh, description of it is on page 44 in what we will call the big book. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope that we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So right there, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. Okay. That's important. That's an important distinction because if you look at what uh, Dr. Silkworth said about the, this idea of the concept of an allergy, uh, he talks about that the phenomenon of craving, i.e., when I introduce alcohol into my body, the phenomenon of craving takes over. Said so that's limited only to the alcoholic class and never occurs in the temperate drinker. Okay. So when people who get wasted, when people who like to get wasted, uh, decide they're not going to get wasted tonight, they have the power to make that choice. And it's not having the power, which that is clearly in step one which is uh, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. So what you're saying there is that they didn't need to admit they were powerless over alcohol because they had that power. And an alcoholic doesn't. Correct, correct. And, and, and like, like we just looked at on page 44, a hard drinker, even a continuous hard drinker, they might catch a drink driving charge, they might get drunk and beat up their kids or something. But when given sufficient reason... Wife says they're going to leave. Doctor says they're going to die. Judge says they're going to lock them up. Things stop or moderate. A true alcoholic never can. Never. And, and for me, I had all those. Doctor said I'm going to die. Girl says she's going to leave. Judge says they're going to lock me up. Guess what? I get sicker. That girl leaves. I get locked up. And it ain't that I loved getting wasted more than I love that girl, more than I love my mama. It's that I'm an alcoholic and that I'm beyond human aid. If I could stop because of my love for other people, then the first time my mom picked me up from jail when I was 16 years old, I'd have never drank again, I'd have never got high again. Okay, so in my early 20s, I got to a point where I was waking up with vomit over my face and, you know, uh, my girlfriend left me and I failed my first year at university. And it was that point, that for me, I think was my rock bottom that was the point when I realized that my life had become unmanageable as it states in step one but I didn't admit that I was powerless over alcohol so then I did what it says in the big book and I tried everything to try and moderate it to try and 
not drink too much, you know, switch drinks, only drink on certain days, only drink after certain times, all that. And I couldn't do it. And it was only when I started uh, abstinence that I was able to basically stop. But I found that I could do it for a month and think, oh yeah, I'm all right, I've done this, this is okay, this is, this is working all right, I can drink normally now. And then I would drink normally for a few days, then at the weekend I'd have too much, and then by week three or four I was back to the way I was. I did that for like 15, 17 years. And then it was uh, when I was doing some abstinence with a friend, we decided that we were both going to stop drinking for, for um, two months, I think it was. And I just found I couldn't do it. And I wasn't, I wasn't um, suddenly just going and getting blind drunk, but it was I could not stop myself from going to the fridge and getting that bottle of cider. And that is when I realised that I was powerless over it. And it, was, it wasn't like some big explosion or some big catalyst. It was a, a sad little whimper of, you know, that glow of the fridge as I opened it up and I thought, shit, I just can't stop. And I knew that I'd have that and I'd be all right or maybe have another one that night. But then tomorrow I'd probably have a few more and then the day after or the weekend I'd, you know, ended up getting drunk, drunk and then it would just escalate and then I'd go, oh no, I better stop this. Then I would stop, then it would be another month and then it would just escalate again. And I did that for ages and end up with all the guilt and the hate of myself and, the, you know, all the suicidal thoughts and God knows what going around in my head. And the stopping drinking is... You know, as a by note, that has really helped my mental health no end. Yeah, and absolutely. And it says when we straighten out spiritually, the mental and physical get straightened out, you know, subsequently. And that's yeah. and I think that's very true in a lot of cases. Um, so you, you mentioned powerlessness. So let's get into the black and white of step one. And then we'll talk yeah, about yeah, the that'd nature be good. of let's, step yeah, one. Yeah, let's get okay? into the black and white step So one. admitted that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Yep. So you look at... Uh, that powerless, as you just spoke about, the well-known stages of the spree, as we saw on page 44. Uh, so I am powerless to stop, and I'm powerless to stay stopped, and I'm powerless to regulate. Okay, so uh, when I was 17, I got busted for smoking grass again, and, and I was going to take a drug test every month. I would have a full month's notice, so I would say, okay, I'm going to smoke grass for a week, drink water for three weeks, I'll be clean by the time i got to take the drug test. Yeah. Then it would turn into two weeks. Then it would turn into one week. Then it's the night before the drug test that I've had a month's notice, and I'm still smoking grass going, how did I do this again? It's not that I didn't understand intellectually that they were going to put me in jail if I failed that drug test. It's not that I was stupid or morally defective. It's that I was getting stoned, I was drinking to overcome a craving beyond my mental control. I had no power of choice in putting that stuff down. Um, so that's, that's, that's real, uh, just a clear-cut example of the, of the powerlessness. Now, was there anything, do you think, in retrospect, there was anything in your life that was causing that craving? I mean, for me, I, I had issues growing up and issues in my life that were... I feel major triggers and issues that have caught, you know, my drinking. A lot of people talk about the drinking being the symptom. Well, it's, that's not a matter of opinion. Page 64 of this book says alcohol is but a symptom of the problem. Later on, the book says bottles were but a symbol. But to say that my drinking 
in the mental, physical aspect, mental, physical, and spiritual, this trifold aspect of my alcoholism is a result of my childhood experiences, denies two parts of the three-part issue. Right. Uh, it contributes to it, especially resentment, especially justified resentment. If you look, uh, and I'm not a statistician, this is all anecdotal, but correlation between people who were abused as children uh, with alcoholism. A lot of people have that, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, it plays into it. But no, man, uh, I, I had, uh, you know, my parents split when I was about 12, but other than that, it was nothing traumatic, man. From the first time I got stoned when I was 14, I loved it. I did it for effect. I didn't have this honeymoon period. I immediately wanted to get messed so, up every day. So for me, when I first drank, uh, part of me thinks that a big aspect of my drinking was it enabled me to uh, feel that connection with a higher power, that otherness, that oneness, that connection. And I think that's also why I ended up dabbling in uh, psychedelics, because that offered me that sort of connection. And I think that's always been a big part for me. Did you have the same experience or is it just... I've taken a lot of psychedelics. Um, no, man, you know, for me, it wasn't, it wasn't anything deeper than I preferred an altered consciousness to my natural one. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I like about, to really. change the way I, f I felt. And that's why, again, booze and dope is a symptom of the problem. So you want to go to one fellowship and say, well, I can still smoke marijuana. Or you want to go to another fellowship and say, well, I can still drink cold beer on the weekend. If you can handle any mind-altering substance in, in a responsible way, I would argue you don't have the same disease that I do. You know what I mean? I would do anything to change the way I felt. If I didn't have grass, I'd drink. If I didn't have drink, I'd take pills. It, it, whatever, man. Uh, that's, that's why it's all the same solution and it's all the same problem. The substance is just a symptom and it's irrelevant. I never found some spiritually higher connection through getting lit. I just know that I preferred it than reality. Yeah. I preferred it over reality. So, powerlessness. Okay, powerlessness and unmanageability. I, I, I've told you about how I was unable to stop. I was unable to stay stopped, even when I knew my freedom was on the line, or even when I knew that uh, the girl I loved was getting ready to leave, yeah. or, or, or the judge threatened me, or, or whatever. Now, if you look at the... Uh, the, the physical aspect of it, there was never enough. It didn't matter if I had $20 worth or $100 worth. I was going to run out and it was going to be a problem. If I used $20 worth three days in a row and then you gave me $100 worth, uh, you would say, oh, well, he can use that $100 worth and break it into five days because he's been using 20 days. No, the $100 worth is just going to go in, in one day, I always too. felt like I was drinking the next drink. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you like the first one is it, as I'm drinking the first one, I'm thinking about the second one. As I'm drinking the second one, I'm thinking about the third one. I'm always drinking the next drink. Yeah. And it's never enjoying the current drink no. or thinking about the current drink or savoring the the moment or anything else. It's always and when I don't have a drink, I'm thinking about the first drink. And when I have the first drink, I'm thinking about the second drink. And it's almost like a an unstoppable chain. And, the, and you've just got to not hook onto the first, first rung. C correct. Because once I put the drink in my body, I'm, I'm unable to tell you what's going to happen. And so one of the book's good definitions of powerless, it'll, it'll say, you look at these guys. I guess this was Silkworth writing. He says, they'll set up a business deal on a date favorable to them. They will pick the date that this deal is supposed to be come to, and they'll work for months getting it set up. And then the date comes to sign the deal. They will take a drink, go on a bender and blow the deal. 
Yeah. It's not because they're stupid. It's because they didn't have a choice of putting it in their body. You know, and so like you said, once I put it in my body, all bets are off. I have no control over when I'm going to stop. Uh, usually it ends in the back of the cop car or how much I'm going to take, what I'm going to take. So, so that's powerless. Pardon me. That's powerless. Let's look at unmanageability. I think a lot of times when we look at unmanageability, and as step two we'll refer back to it, they'll talk about um, insanity, being restored to sanity. We suffer from alcoholic insanity. It is not about the jail cells I ended up in. It is not about the relationships that I screwed up. It is not about that whatever. Oh, yeah, I drove my car through a pub or whatever. It's not about that. Those are crazy things. That's not alcoholic insanity. When we're talking about the unmanageability of our lives and we're talking about alcoholic insanity, we're talking about with full knowledge of what happens when I put a drink in my body, with full knowledge of what happened the last 20 times, I'm going to do it again. And that's why we have to have this defense, not just this intellectual understanding that a drink will only make a problem worse. Because this book tells me, and my disease has played out time and time again, that with full knowledge of it, I'll take that drink anyway. Yeah. I was just going to say, for me, like the unmanageability was the constant suicidal thoughts and the, and the not knowing uh, like how I was going to cope with money and how I was going to cope with a situation and just the, the, like, the mental mess as opposed to my life actually being a mess because I was so lucky to have good friends and family around me and I was kind of supported. Now they didn't directly enable me, but I was in a situation where I could basically get away with it. But but let's make it simpler than that. Let's make it simpler than that. Being at home, in my home, all by myself, with all my comforts, in the definition of my safe zone, my comfort zone, being in my own home and not being okay. Yeah. That's unmanageability. Being internally not okay with yeah. who I am. Yeah, that is really tough. And that is and you live with it and you live with your yes. head. And it's constantly there grinding away. I remember being in a big old grocery store towards the end of my disease, and there are lots of people in this grocery store. And I remember looking around and feeling like it was me and everyone else in the world. Because every bit of me was not okay with being me. That's unmanageability. I mean, forget about spiritual peace and, and, and all those those other things. I mean, if, if you can't be okay in your own body, that's unmanageability. Yeah. And it's unmanageability that a lot of people suffer with, but I think alcoholics seem to have a, a special connection with that kind of I loneliness. Can, I can remember being at um, music gigs with a load of friends having a, you know, supposedly enjoying myself and having a fantastic time, beer in hand, watching the gig and just feeling like the most lonely, empty soul in the universe and actually being surrounded by friends and family. This should be the happiest I should be, you know, and I'm not. And I just feel like putting a gun in my mouth and pulling the trigger because it's just just unbearable. Absolutely. And And it makes no sense to anyone else. And you're just like, I just can't cope with this. And you just drink yourself to oblivion. No, and if you're around long enough, you know, I've had several friends in this deal who were wealthy. And, and, and I mean, you know, well-to-do. 
and they had family and they had money and they had holiday homes and they had everything else. That has no correlation. But, but at the end of the friggin' day, they'd be holed up in a crack house. Yeah. They, you know, it, I mean, just the loneliest, loneliest, most miserable people. Um, because, because you're right, man, it has nothing to do with the external. It's hundred percent internal. So I'm going to hit on, I'm going to hit on one point about, we talked about how we get in here. Cause a lot of us got in, keep in mind, I got busted for grass the first time when I was 16 and I had myriad consequences that got worse and worse and worse as, as the consequences of progressive disease generally do, uh, for years after that. But I didn't get sober till I was 23. Uh, so there were a lot of periods of me trying to do it my way, right? And uh, trying to do it just on abstinence alone, or I would get sent to treatment, you know? And so I'd be dry for a month or two months, whatever. Yeah. So if you look at uh, page 151, bottom page 151, now and then a serious drinker, and in this concept it means an alcoholic, not, yeah. a, not, a, not a hard drinker. Now and, then again, now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. I feel better. I work better. Having a better time. And you hear that a lot. Yeah. You hear that a lot from people in means, well, I don't have a sponsor or anything, but I feel good. I don't want to drink. As ex-problems drinkers, we can smile at such a Sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take half a dozen drinks and get away with it. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. And that's a key right there, man. So for me, I came a point when I was about... I don't know, six weeks in, and I still wanted one final bender, one final, you know, getting out of my head as like a farewell thing or, you know, just like get it out of my system. And I really had to fight to to be like, you've had thousands of those. You don't need another one. And then it was that slow yeah. letting go that then meant, okay, I get this. That's, you know, I'm no longer trying to trick myself or make myself think I'm okay. I've really got to let go of that. And then as soon as I did. And, and that's, and letting go of that reservation is key because a lot of people don't. And, 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 okay, so I'll finish this and then I'll get Sorry to, to, to that. No, 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 because, because that leads into what I want to talk to next. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be, he will be unable to imagine life either with it or without it. Then he will know loneliness as few do. He will be at the jumping off point. He will wish for the end. And that's how broken you need to be before you can get this. So let's go to page 30. So we looked at the black and white. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. Okay, I could tell you I was powerless because I couldn't stop, couldn't stay stopped. I could go to treatment and dry out for 30 days. So the physical craving would be totally gone, but the mental obsession would still be there. And I would fantasize and think and stew on a drink, on a drug for days, weeks, whatever, until it would culminate and I would finally take one. And I don't need a good reason to take one. It took but, me but, ages to get rid of that. But that shows you that it's beyond just the physical aspect. You can detox me physically. Oh, yeah, But yeah. I will have the mental obsession for a drink if untreated until I take another one again, which is why telling somebody, go to a bunch of meetings and don't drink one day at a time will never keep them in a long-term sobriety if they're a real alcoholic because... They are still without defense against the first drink. You cannot be rid of the mental obsession without putting in the work. You know, and it's not that we have a monopoly on this. All I'm saying, though, is if God's got you in a 12-step program, I figure he'd want you to work the steps. We got here by doing things our way. You're going to come to a 12-step program and say, I don't need to get a sponsor. I don't need to read a book. I don't need to work the steps. You, you, 
your way worked out that well before that you're just going to keep doing it your way? You don't think you should try it this way? You don't think God's got you here for a reason? So why anybody would come to a 12-step program and not work these steps is beyond me. So just, just real quick. We talked about powerless. We talked about unmanageable. We talked about not being able to stop, not being able to stay stopped, no matter how much intellectually I know how harmful it is. We've talked about the unmanageability, not just externally, but internally. So that ticks off the black and white boxes of step one, right? That ticks off the wording of step one. Now, I had done that by the time I was about 17 years old. I could tell you I was powerless. I could tell you I was unmanageable. I could even tell you I was an alcoholic. Didn't bother me a bit. I knew I was abnormal. Why are you drunk? It's nine in the morning. I'm an alcoholic. Mind your business. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't bother me a bit. So why hadn't I taken step one? And it's what you got into. Page 30, more about alcoholism. Most of us have been unwilling to admit that we are real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. So I could tell you I was powerless. I could tell you my life was unmanageable. Okay, But in my mind, I had this picture that somehow, someday in the future, I could be happy, joyous, free, and drunk. And this tells me that until I smash that delusion, until I swallow the pill that I'll never be able to drink successfully, I can't move forward. But once I realized that, as you said, once I realized that I would never be able to drink like other people, not that I wanted to drink recreationally, but what I mean is to drink without consequences, to drink with peace, to drink with happiness and relationships, until I smash that delusion, I couldn't move forward. But once I realized I'd never be able to take so much as one drink successfully, then I had truly done a step one. And that's what page 30 tells me is necessary. And there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't disagree with that at all. That's exactly how it was for me. And the penny drop for me was after my very first 12 step meeting in the meetings I go to. Whenever there's a newcomer, they do step one. So they did step one for me when I turned up. And at the time, I was kind of like fighting back the tears because it was just the, the sheer realisation just hitting me again and again and again. And then when I got home and I said to my wife, I, that's it. Because when I went, I was still in denial. I was like, well, I'll go along and see what it's like, um, you know, just to sort of tick it off that I'm, I'm definitely not an alcoholic. And then as soon as I went, that was the big moment. That was when I thought, oh, shit, this is me. And then when I got back and I said to my wife, I'm an alcoholic, this is, they were talking about me in the room, that is when it really hit me. And that's, that, that's when the sort of the penny dropped, I think. And that's when, not that I did my step one, but that's when it was apparent that I needed to process that and that needed to happen. And that was sort of like the beginning of my, my journey into persistent sobriety. Yeah, yeah and, and, and it's, it's important to understand what step one isn't. You know, you hear people say, well, write down every time that a drink caused you a problem. Well, ho hold on. R read your big book. That's not what this is. This is an internal understanding issue, okay? We can write down my war story all we want. Those are all, as we discussed, those are all external. Those are all ancillary things. That has nothing to do with my feeling, my hollow 
uh, uh, empty, uh, self-destructive. What we're trying to strive for is, is the is the switch inside. So we we can write that we can write that down uh, uh, till the cows come home. But then Joe Stockbroker, million quid a year, twenty million quid in the bank, got a wife that loves him, got kids that loves him, may never got drunk and wrecked his Ferrari, but is dying on the inside. Joe Stockbroker says, "Oh, I guess I'm not an alcoholic." Yeah. You know. So we've got it. We've got to get that idea. Out of our head, and just like we discussed, it don't matter if you're on a park bench, it don't matter if you drink every day, it don't matter if you drink in the morning, it ain't about that. That ain't what makes me an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is what happens when I put the drink in me. Now, predicate to step one, look at page 58, how it works. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. What is the implication there? If you don't want what we have, if you don't want freedom from alcoholism, and you're not willing to go to any length to get it, you're not ready to take certain steps. So I think think it's interesting that you touched on the fact that you can be wealthy and have a Ferrari and everything else, but still have that within you. And also, for me, it was quite a realization that there were so many different types of uh, alcoholic. So there was the there was the the me that was doing all right and had a bit you know had an all right job and you know was doing okay for himself and a wife and the house and whatnot. And then there was people on the park bench. And then there was millionaires. And, it, and there's everything in between. And it's your state inside instead of the external. But obviously the external can obviously be a a signifier and show what is yeah, going no, on inside. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I, what I always say is, you know, I, I, back home, see here they say, will you do a share? And they mean that you, well, they want you to talk for uh, 20 minutes and then, then the people will share back. But back home, uh, if there's a speaker meeting, generally, you just get up and talk for an hour. Um, and one thing that I'll do when I'm, when I'm getting into it is I'll say, you know, not everybody has to go to jail to be an alcoholic. And I wave at those people from the back of the cop car as I go to jail again. <laughs> you know, so I'm a low-bottom drunk. And, and, and again, what does the book say? Is most of us have to be pretty badly mangled before we'll accept spiritual yeah. help. Uh, but again, as we discussed, that mangling can be internal. Now, for me, yeah, I burned every bridge I had. You know, I, I, I did go to jail a lot for the same crap again and again and again, just a bunch of dope charges and violations for probation for my dope charges and and, and, and everything else, just those normal alcoholic symptoms, man. Uh, but but what made it... Am un- I right in thinking that for you, it wasn't so much about the alcohol and it was more about weed? No, no, oh shoot, man, no, weed, I just I just brought weed into, I mean, I always like smoke weed, but again, man, don't focus on the symptoms. No, if, if you want, I mean... Because it manifests itself in all ways. Yeah, it's it's a, it's about my personality defects. No matter what I used, I used it unmanageability. But I, I did everything, man. I, I did absolutely, I did absolutely everything. Well, I shouldn't say everything. All of the mainstream ones, you know what I mean. <laughs> um, so, so I, I don't. I'm hesitant to even get into the symptoms about it, man, because I don't want anybody who's listening to this trying to get schooled on the twelve steps. I don't want them to try to relate to my war story because of the substances I was on. I want them to relate to how broken I was. I want them to relate to the fact that I was unable to stop my own power. I wanted. I want them to relate to the idea that I love my mom and I love my woman and I love my freedom, but none of that would keep me from putting it in my body. You feel me? Yeah, I get you. Um, not that I'm hesitant. If you want to ask about a substance or something, I mean, that's, that's fine. I just, I never focus on it. When I get asked to do a speaker meeting, you know, you go to these speaker meetings and generally, somebody tells a rambling war story, 
and then goes, and now I don't drink one day at a time. And everybody claps. And it's like, you have given the newcomer nothing. They know how to get high. And the, <laughs> the first time that I was asked to do a speaker meeting, do a one-hour speaker meeting, is at my favorite uh, treatment center where I was not a guest, but I'd done a lot of work. And I did my first speaker meeting there, and I'd done many since. But after the first one, my sponsor, he, uh, my original sponsor from back in Texas, uh, I got up there and I did what I had heard. I told a rambling war story and said, and now I don't drink anymore. Yeah. And my sponsor came up to me and he goes, yeah, that was great. But the best speaker I ever heard just got up and went through the 12 steps. And that's what I've been doing ever since because newcomers know how to get wasted. But unfortunately, we've so watered down this program. People don't read the book. People don't know the book. People don't know how to convey what this book's instructions are to a newcomer. And so now when I speak, I go through the 12 steps out of the book. If I got an hour, what I've been doing here uh, in, in England is I just go through one through five. Uh, yeah. Because now sometimes they'll invite me back the next week to go through six through 12 well, if they're I into it. we can it. have you to do all 12 if yeah, you're up for it. Yeah, I'm with it. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay, well, thank you, Paul. I don't know. Have you got anything else you want to add? Yeah, you know, the, the I think the most important thing any of us can do, newcomer, old-timer, whatever, read this book. Read the first 164 pages, start it over again. Because that's the only way, you know, there's a lot of people basing their entire program on something that some jerk in a meeting said that they just made up. This book is the program. So whenever you're hearing instructions from an old-timer, whenever you want to know what to do as a newcomer, if it don't jive with the book, it's just somebody's opinion. It's the same thing. Anything that I say that can't be justified with the first 164 pages of the book, scrap it. You don't need my opinion. What's the opinion of a drunk? Educate yourself on what this program is. Read this book. Know the book. Don't give instructions that ain't in the book, or if they do, be sure you're qualifying that. And, and saying why that worked in your recovery or whatever. But don't speak with authority on something that you've just made up because it's dangerous. Thank you very much. And we ended it there. I know you'll agree we covered a fair bit in 45 minutes. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to like and subscribe. Also, at the bottom of this podcast are notes and links to anything I think is relevant. So check those out for further reading. And if you think it was any good then perhaps mention it to a friend at a 12-step meeting. I hope to get Paul back soon to do more of the 12 steps. And so all that's left to say is thanks, goodbye, and that was a Sobering Thought podcast.